Go and find 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5. Well, good morning to you. And uh, while I'm up here, I want to go ahead and extend the invitation this afternoon at 5. This will be our monthly Q&A night. Um, this evening I've got three questions I plan on answering, including one that came from uh, uh, the kids' Bible classes back there. There's a question that came up, and uh, I gave priority to that. So someone else's got, question got bumped off because... One of the kids asked a question, so they're getting their question answered. First Peter 5 and verse 8. First Peter 5 and verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil is real. Do you believe that? The devil is real. Peter affirms the devil is not some mythical creature who only exists in cartoons, wearing red tights with a pitchfork in his hand, sitting on your left shoulder telling you to do a bad thing. The devil is not just a symbol of evil. He's not a metaphor for something. He's real. And not only is he real, he is active in our world. He is actively seeking people to devour. He is hungry, trying to tempt souls away from God and bring them to destruction. Sometimes I I think I see this in myself. We talk about sin as sort of an abstract concept. And sin is mainly about us making bad choices. And of course, that's a big part of it. But there is a very real person on the other side of sin, offering it to us, actively trying to get us to choose it. I was reminded of this verse recently as I I paged again through the the book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, The Screwtape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis, uh, which I highly recommend basically imagines the dialogue between two demons, between a, junior, uh, a senior demon and a junior demon. Their names are Screwtape and Wormwood. Uh, Wormwood is, is the younger, inexperienced demon. Screwtape is his uncle and his mentor, training him in the ways of demonhood. And so it's a series of letters uh, imagined from these two demons, written from Screwtape to his young protege, and, and he's advising him on the best way to tempt the human he's been assigned to. Screwtape advises Wormwood on the the best ways to exploit the human's weaknesses that he's been assigned to, the best ways to discourage him, the best ways to make him stop caring or stop trying so hard to serve God, or the best way not to make him to stop care but to care about the wrong things. And he doesn't actually care, you know, which side of whatever current political debate he falls on just as long as he invests himself more in that than he does in the service of God. The best way to distract him, the best ways to lead him away from the enemy. And when they talk about the enemy, they're always talking about God. While it's a work of fiction, it helped remind me of a verse I know to be completely true. That your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The the devil is real. And he is actively trying to tempt every person here away from God. So what I want us to, to do this morning, what I want to do is to play the devil's advocate, quite literally. I want to sort of get in the mind of the devil. From Scripture, I want us to learn everything we can about the devil's tactics so that we can better understand what we're up against as Christians and as a church. Because not only is he trying to disrupt us individually, he is trying to disrupt this church. And so the title of my sermon is How to Destroy a Church. I want to imagine some of the tactics the devil is using to try to get his foot in the door 
of this church and destroy it in one way or another. So I have three ways, three ways to destroy a church. The first, stop standing for truth. This is Acts chapter 20. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. So as you turn there, here, let me do my, my uh, imitation, my C.S. Lewis imitation, where I try to act, act like one of his, uh, one of his imagined uh, demons. So here is perhaps something the devil might be thinking. You know, those Christians in Mount Pleasant know as well as I do that remaining faithful to God and to his word is, is difficult. Even, even the enemy, even God knows that and acknowledges that, that there are difficult things. And of course, he would say, this is to my advantage. You know, human beings are like sheep, even, even the enemy, even God uses this analogy. They're always afraid to stand alone like sheep. Well, I've been successful in creating a culture that changes its morality every other year. And I've been successful in creating a religious culture that in the name of relevance seems to always be ready to assimilate itself to that culture. So here's what I'll do. I'll get them to see just how alone they are in trying to serve God and follow the Bible. Hopefully they'll begin to get uncomfortable with that idea of standing alone, sheep, sheep as they are. I'll shake their confidence in the Bible. I'll help them along with justifications for why God didn't actually mean what he obviously said. I'm, I'm not just making this up out of, out of nowhere, although I kind of am. But the, the constant concern of the New Testament writers is that Christians would stop standing for truth, that they would believe lies and error, that they would assimilate themselves to the world and not witness to that world the truth of God. This is Acts 20 and verse 20, 28. Paul here is giving his final message to the Ephesian elders, and he tells them, here is what you need to watch out for. Acts 20 and verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So to the Ephesian elders, Paul's warning here, is about fierce wolves that will come in and try to ravage the church. Now, who are the fierce wolves he's talking about here? Is he talking about, is he talking about uh, persecutors? Is he talking about Roman soldiers beating down the doors and, and hauling off Christians? Who is he talking about? No, verse 30, again, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. He is talking here not about, not about people who, who use violence, to, to, against people's will, take them away from God. Not, not what's often our greatest fear when it comes to, to suffering or, or having hardship serving God. No, he's talking about people who come in with words. People who speak things which are wrong and will draw away people of their own volition, will draw away people after themselves. Not using force, drawing people away with false teaching, with palatable lies, with errors that we would like to be true. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. People who come under the guise of teaching God's word and then go and do the opposite of that. This is 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 4, in another place, Paul warns 
Paul warns the young preacher Timothy about this very same sort of thing. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul warns Timothy of a time when people will prefer an easier-to-swallow version of Christianity, when people will have itching ears, and then they will go search out people who will scratch that itch, someone who will have an urge and then will want someone to indulge that urge, not to speak God's word as it really is, but to tell them what they want to hear. They will prefer teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And what he says is the devil is behind this tactic, to convince us to believe error and to stop standing for truth, and we like it every step of the way. See, lies are usually easier to swallow. Error, almost all error, almost all heresies in, in the history of Christianity can, can be traced to, to, trying to trying to suit some taste or some opinion people have, that people believe it because they want it to be true. Preaching that leaves out sin, preaching that ignores the hard sayings of Jesus, preaching that tones down the demands of discipleship, it's easy to see the appeal of this, isn't it? For a church to assimilate to the modern religious world is much easier than being the odd man out. And you get called all sorts of names because you stand for, stand for God's truth. So, for example, it, it's, much, it's much more convenient to, to teach and believe that, that people can divorce and remarry for any cause at all. You never have to have many uncomfortable conversations about that sort of thing, do you? It's just sort of, just sort of permitted. It's much more appealing to believe that, that every, every good person whatever that means, but every good person will be saved or, or that hell doesn't, doesn't actually exist. It's much easier to make your starting place the culture's idea of morality this week and then work backwards to make the Bible fit that. And then you never get called any names by people. But here's what we need to see. Lies and error are of the devil. And they are easier to swallow and more palatable because he has made them that way. If all, her- if all error held no appeal, if all false teaching looked and smelled as false and disgusting as it actually was, then of course no one would ever follow it. If standing for truth was always the easiest and most convenient thing to do, then of course everyone would do that. Error looks good. Error is easier to believe and teach, but it will kill your soul. And so a surefire way to, to destroy a church is to stop Standing for truth. Now, it's likely when that happens, the church will not literally be disbanded the minute that error is taught. And in fact, the church may even grow in number as that error is taught. But of course, its integrity and purity will be destroyed. Its lampstand will be removed in the language of Revelation. It will cease to be truly a church of Christ. And the devil will throw a victory parade. And by the way, let me also say this. Even before we get to get to eternity, if, if we've learned anything uh, over the past, uh, over the 20th century, from the mainline Protestant denominations, those groups who really tried to stay relevant in the 20th century as the culture became increasingly skeptical about the supernatural, there are many churches that toned down, for example, the deity of Jesus and just made Jesus a, a teacher of good morals and things like that. 
If we've learned anything from those efforts to try to stay relevant to the culture, those churches that did that are basically, have basically ceased to exist. Those mainline Protestant denominations are in complete decline. Their attempt to stay relevant only led to their decline. Paul describes the church as the pillar and buttress of truth. The question is, if we don't stand for God's truth, if we don't keep speaking the truth of God, who in the world will? Which brings us to number two. If you want to destroy a church, here's what you do. Constantly criticize each other. This is Mark 14. Turn with me to Mark 14. So let me get once more in that mindset, inhabit inhabit the consciousness of one of these demons, here's what he might say. He might say, you know, I've still got my eye on that Southside Church of Christ. I might have my, my work cut out for me. I tried to, tried to float some false doctrine. That didn't go over too well. So here's what I'll do. Here's another tactic. I'll pit brother against brother, sister against sister. I'll nurture a disagreement. It might just have to be between two people to get started. But if I'm lucky, they'll never stop and realize that disagreement was really over a matter of judgment or opinion, and I'll create a rift. And then everyone will think they need to take sides in this childish, childish disagreement. And, and then everyone will start sniping at the other and calling names and talking behind each other's backs. And of course, eventually that runs off younger and weaker Christians who say, oh, if, if this is what this is all about, then I want no part of God. It will discourage everyone else, and maybe I could even create a split. I'll use a constant stream of criticism to tear down every person's faith. I'll get people to get at each other's throats, and everyone else will say, I want no part of it. This is Mark 14. I want you to look with me at an illustration of this sort of thing, of this destructive criticism. I want you to notice the destructive capability of criticism, and I want you to notice how hard Jesus comes down on it. This is Mark 14 and verse 3. Mark 14 and verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so there is this woman that parallel accounts Tell her it's Mary. She brings expensive ointment and she begins to anoint Jesus' head. And just as soon as she does this, the peanut gallery begins to pipe up. Verse 4 again. Why was this ointment wasted? It could have been sold and, and used and given to the poor. They scold her. They say, Mary, what are you doing? This could have been given to the poor. To which Jesus immediately responds, leave her alone. Mary, perhaps having knowledge about what was to come, Jesus' death, the only one who realizes What's happening this night? He says, she has done a beautiful thing. She has anointed my body. She has understood who I am and treated me with a reverence that none of you have. But the disciples, the other disciples could only criticize. 
See, the critical spirit looks at something good and it can only find fault. And it, it is able, if it's critical enough, to find fault in every situation. It always looks for reasons to discount. And Jesus looked at those with that sort of mindset, with that way of being. Jesus looks at that mindset with a steely gaze and he says, leave her alone. He rebukes the sort of fault-finding spirit which, can tear, which only tears down others. Now, a disclaimer, of course. Correction is not the same thing as criticism. Correction is necessary. Jesus did a fair bit of that. What Jesus here is looking at is unjust, unfair criticism. But I want you to just imagine this with me. Think with me about how this sort of critical spirit could have hurt Mary. I want you to imagine, for example, if Jesus wasn't here to rebuke this attitude. And if Mary receives this sort of scolding from the other disciples and Jesus never steps in and says, leave her alone. Next time, would Mary be so eager to step out and do something good if this is what she got for her trouble the first time? Would you? You know, I'll just get scolded for trying to do something. She's been shamed for doing a good thing. No good deed goes unpunished. So what do you think will happen when we snipe at, when we complain, when we murmur, when we criticize someone who is trying to do something good in the church? Do you think they'll be anxious to do that good in the future? Would you? Now, maybe they didn't do it just the way we would want them to, but the critical spirit sees to it, it will never be done at all. Maybe it was their first attempt at something and they didn't do so great, but the critical spirit sees to it that it will definitely be their last attempt. And oftentimes, the critical spirit says more about the giver of criticism than it does about the receiver of it. And that's definitely the case in this story. In, in John's account of this story, in John chapter 12, we are told that it is Judas in particular who is vocal about his criticism of Mary. When they all say this could have been sold and the money collected and given to the poor, Judas especially is vocal in his criticism. Now what does that say? It doesn't say anything about Mary. It says a lot about Judas. What did Judas want? Well, we know Judas wanted to sell the ointment and put the money in the money box under the guise of giving it to the poor and then dip into that money box later for himself. It was true of Judas, and it is often true of the criticizer, that the constant finding of fault with others is an attempt to deflect attention from ourselves. That if I can always be on the offensive, criticizing someone else, then the magnifying glass will never be turned on me. The situation with, with Judas criticizing Mary for, for wasting costly ointment while still stealing is perfectly described by Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 3. Why do you see that speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The effect of constant unjust criticism is absolutely destructive. It hurts everyone. And the devil loves it. If he could cause this church to be given to constant criticism among ourselves, he would, be, he would fall over himself, over joy. He would love nothing better than for us to bite and devour one another. You know, it was this, this exact kind of spirit that led to Moses' earthly demise. You remember how much Israel complained against Moses? Moses, we're tired of this manna. Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. Moses, who made you and Aaron so special? The whole congregation is holy, not just you. Who are you to tell us what to do? Moses, we're thirsty. Moses, we don't like your wife. An ex a constant, unending stream of criticism that tore him down. And at one point, he asked God how much, how much longer he must endure it and asks to die. And, and you know the story when Moses strikes the rock 
instead of speaking to it. It was in frustration over this. He says, hear now you rebels, as he hits that rock. Moses is culpable for his disobedience, but he's also pushed toward it with the help of his brethren because there's only so much a man could take. And Moses was just a man. And I'm not as good a man as Moses. And if it wore Moses down, it'll it'll wear any of us down. This happens in churches. Paul warned the Galatians of the danger of biting and devouring and consuming, becoming consumed with one another. James spoke at length about the dangers of the tongue. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. And so a surefire way to destroy a church is to criticize it to death. The devil would love if we bit and devoured one another. He would love for us to discourage young Christians with our criticism of them. He would love for us to speak harshly with one another when we disagreed. He would love for us to focus on name-calling instead of actually discussing what it is God's word says. Which brings us to number three. Third and finally, if you want to destroy a church, do the bare minimum. This is Revelation 3. Turn with you to Revelation 3. Revelation 3. Once more, allow me to uh, get in my demon, demon mindset. Here, here is perhaps what a demon would be saying. Well, maybe I could convince a few members that being a Christian basically means sitting in a pew for an hour or two each week. It shouldn't be that hard to convince people of that. After all, it makes people feel holy while at the same time requiring almost no effort. Apathy spreads like a disease. I can start with one or two, but if I can get a few more members of that church to start with that, I can discourage the rest. I can make them all want to tone down their discipleship or ask themselves, what does it matter? Better still, if I could convince a whole generation of parents that bare minimum Christianity is acceptable, they'll raise a whole generation of kids who will think the same. In many ways, apathy is a better tool than apostasy. Because when they fall away completely, sometimes that pesky conscience acts up. But this way, they can be lost at the same time they feel saved. Again, I don't think I'm pulling this out of of thin air. I'm using a little creativity. But there is a New Testament church that did exactly what the devil wanted them to in this way. That was lost while sitting in a pew. This is Revelation 3 and verse 15. Revelation 3 and verse 15 where Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit or vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea's problem was, was lukewarmness, apathy, complacency. They were neither hot nor cold. In other words, they hadn't gone to any extreme. Now, obviously, they hadn't caught on fire with zeal for Jesus. They weren't following him passionately and wholeheartedly. But what he's also saying is neither were they total apostates who had, who had gone back into paganism. They weren't that either. Verse 17 well describes their self-satisfaction. You say, I am rich, I've prospered, and you nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They said, we're doing fine. 
We're doing great with this Christianity thing. We need nothing. Not realizing that their souls were absolutely sick and wretched and dying. Verse 16 again, Because you are, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus' clear verdict on lukewarm discipleship, which is content with the bare minimum. I will spit you out of my mouth. In the end of verse 15, he laments, you know, that even if they strongly opposed Jesus, even if they had turned into, into Saul when he was persecuting Christians, at least he would know where they stood, and at least they would know where they stood. At least they would have picked a side. But the one thing you can never reason with is apathy. It's like pushing against a curtain. There's nothing to push, there's nothing to push against. I want you to go with me to Luke 14. As we compare Laodicea to Jesus' description of true discipleship. Luke 14. In Luke 14. This is what Jesus said discipleship actually looks like. Luke 14 and verse 25. Luke 14 and verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. What about that sounds lukewarm? bare minimum, complacent. Sunday morning attendance, maybe. See, bare minimum Christianity, like believing error, is easier. It doesn't demand growth. It doesn't demand study, commitment, sacrifice, discipleship. And it really seems to be convenient. It's really a have your cake and eat it too. You can, you can spend most of your time how you want. You can do life the way you want. You don't have to make sacrifices. You don't have to change your behavior. You don't have to change your priorities. And at the same time you do what you want, we still get to feel good about ourselves because we got church. That's the appeal of bare minimum discipleship. What Jesus shows us, though, is that while it might satiate our conscience a little bit, that ultimately half-hearted bare minimum Christianity is not Christianity at all. It is of no value to God, and he spits it out of his mouth. And when we're vomited out of Jesus' mouth, where else is there to go but into the devil's arms? I'm, I'm convinced around the year A.D. 300, uh, the devil changed tactics. Previously to that, Christianity was, was outlawed in the Roman Empire, and it was considered a threat. To be a Christian prior to, to A.D. 300 meant it would cost you, almost always, one way or another. But, but with Constantine's institution of Christianity as the national religion of Rome in 324, what soon, what soon begins is an era of cheap Christianity, where it didn't cost to become a Christian. In fact, it cost not to be one. 
And I'm convinced that's basically our situation today still. In, in spite of, uh, of how much hand-wringing we do these days about growing hostility to Christianity and the decline of biblical morality in our culture, and I've done, I've done my fair share of that, and I still do. But in spite of all that hand-wringing, I mean, we need to face the fact that as of now, in Mount Pleasant, Texas at least, it costs very little to call yourself a Christian. It costs very little. My life has never been threatened because of my faith. I've never been threatened to stop preaching or else, or else be killed like the apostles have been, for which I'm grateful. I wouldn't wish for the opposite. But we need to acknowledge dangers in cheap Christianity. There is the danger of complacency where it's harder to see how much Christianity should cost, which is, Jesus says, everything, even your own life, that nothing you have and nothing you want is too important to sacrifice in the name of Jesus. This is the most insidious way to do it. You want to destroy a church and you want to do it from the inside out, then stop caring and stop working and stop attending so often, and stop checking in on your brethren so often, and stop sacrificing things for Jesus. Come here every once in a while to make yourself feel holy, but do nothing else. That is exactly what the devil wants. So as we end, let me go to 1 Peter 5 one more time. We'll read the next few verses now, following on this warning about the devil's tactics. This is 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says the devil is real. He is actively trying to undermine your faith and actively trying to undermine the good of this church. He is trying to get at us. He doesn't really care how, just as long as we step away from God. Which means if we want to thwart his tactics, as Peter is encouraging you want to make the devil mad, here's what you do. You stand for truth. The devil hates when you do that. And you start building up your brethren and encouraging them because the devil hates when you do that. And you commit yourself to wholehearted discipleship that actually costs something. The devil really hates when you do that. Of course, we haven't talked about how to destroy a church with the intention that we actually try to do that. But to see the devil's tactics for what they actually are and to ally ourselves with the one screw tape called the enemy. We want to make our hearts in this church a place where the devil is given no open door, no foothold, no quarter. May this always be a place where truth is taught, where encouragement is given, and where true discipleship is practiced. Maybe there's someone here this morning that realizes that you are in the grip of Satan in one of these ways or an innumerable list of others. Perhaps you want to come and repent you want to come and be restored to God, be restored to discipleship, be restored to truth. If there's anyone who needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing.
This afternoon for us to read the first chapter of James. 